Welcome back to another special SCOTUS confirmation edition of the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile, and today was the third day of Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. As on the first two days of hearings, frequent protests interrupted the proceedings, and objections also were leveled by Democratic senators who, along with their Republican colleagues, conducted a second day of extended examinations of the nominee. Aside from continued wrangling over the adequacy of Kavanaugh's documentary record, a theme that's played out over the course of the week, a range of pointed legal inquiries were posed on areas relating to executive power, voting rights, criminal justice, affirmative action, abortion, immigration, campaign finance, LGBT rights, and what constitutes settled precedent and when SCOTUS rulings should be revisited. On some issues, Kavanaugh expanded somewhat substantively in other areas, unsurprisingly, and perhaps most repeatedly in the area of whether or not he might recuse himself in a Supreme Court case that came before him involving the president if he was less committal. Coincidentally with the questioning, but outside of the confines of the hearing room, over the course of the day, various documents previously undisclosed were released by various Democratic senators, mostly from Kavanaugh's time within the George W. Bush White House, some seeming to offer a bit more clarity as to his position on salient and contentious areas of the law, in particular the independence of certain executive agencies, affirmative action, and the continued viability of the Roe v. Wade precedent. Here to unpack today's events, we're joined now by Ben Foyer. He's the chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a boutique appellate firm in San Francisco. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's always great to be here. Yeah, so uh, day three of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings is winding down. A good bit more sound and fury today, if not always between the, the examining senators and the nominee between some of the senators and some action sort of outside of the hearing room as well. Before diving into some of the nitty-gritty here, we might just discuss at the outset, you think that kind of notwithstanding really much that goes on over the course of these few days, and this seems to be a prevailing opinion as well, that the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh is a fait accompli. There are enough Republican senators to confirm him, perhaps even some red state Democrats as well. And so not much that happens this week will have a whole lot of effect on the eventual outcome. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, the, there there is a lot of sound and fury. There makes for good television. Uh, Democratic senators are definitely talking to their base um, and, and their support groups who uh, greatly oppose Brett Kavanaugh for many reasons. But the reality is this is an opportunity that the conservative legal movement has been waiting for really since the Great Depression. Um, this is the first time when a, a, a real conservative majority will have a grasp on the Supreme Court of the United States uh, since the 1930s. And you know this is something that they have been looking for and, and hoping for a very, very long time. For many groups, uh, the elevation of Brett Kavanaugh is the reason, perhaps even the only reason, that they've been willing to support President Trump may have many policies or approaches or styles that uh, uh, some groups, evangelical groups, other groups disagree with. Um, but putting a conservative as the fifth, a true conservative who's not a swing vote, as the fifth justice uh, of, of the conservative movement on the Supreme Court uh, is so important to these groups. Uh, that there's pretty much nothing that could happen at these hearings uh, that would prevent that from taking place. That's particularly so. In fact, that's especially so or even only so 
uh, because, of course, uh, there no longer is a filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in their confirmation. This is it's not the first time since the early 1900s where this has been the case because the filibuster was removed for Neil Gorsuch, but Judge Gorsuch was replacing Justice Scalia politically and in terms of the effect on the court, it was basically a wash. But here, uh, Judge Kavanaugh will be replacing Justice Kennedy, a swing vote, somebody who certainly agreed with Democrats or, or at least left-leaning uh, members of the court on a number of important issues from abortion rights uh, to the death penalty. And he is going to be replaced with somebody who is very much a true conservative, One will be one of the most conservative members of the Supreme Court. So the elevation of Judge Kavanaugh without a filibuster in place means that only 51 Republicans or senators of any type need to sign on. The Republicans have 51 senators in the Senate. Uh, there are a number of Democrats who are up for re-election in conservative states. Uh, I think it is almost impossible to conceive of a situation in which Judge Kavanaugh does not receive 51 votes. Uh, he could probably stand up on his chair and do the hokey pokey and would still get uh, 51 votes, but he is much more politically adept uh, and much more astute to do anything like that. I think this is pretty much a done deal. With that as sort of the, the generally agreed dynamic at play here that not much can get in the way of a Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, I think that's sort of been what watchers have been looking for, a potential instance where the the nominee gets tripped up in such a way that might actually have some meaningful detriment. Last night, before we get into the events of today, pretty late into the evening, one event did get a lot of attention as a potential instance where the, the nominee got tripped up, at least to some extent, was when California Senator Kamala Harris asked Judge Kavanaugh whether he had had any interaction with the law firm of Mark Kazowitz, uh, Donald Trump's former personal outside counsel for a brief period last year regarding the, the special counsel investigation. It was an interesting exchange. I thought you know, it seemed like a question she might ask as a former prosecutor, you know, knowing that there was an answer she thought would be worthwhile to have come out. And Judge Kavanaugh didn't say no or that he didn't recall. He seemed to react sort of in a perplexed manner. Perhaps it's because you know there's plenty of lawyers and D.C. might not know who all works at the firm, as he has uh, sort of said today was the reason for his response. But it did seem like a bit of an odd exchange. Did you have any thoughts as to that exchange and maybe why it, it seemed to, to get so much attention last night? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right that, you know, pro probably Senator Harris had something in mind. Most prosecutors say you don't ask a question you don't know the answer to in advance. And I think uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who's also a very experienced member of uh, the District of Columbia political judicial world uh, also knows you don't answer a question when you don't know why it's being asked. And what I read out of that or what I got out of that was that, you know, perhaps Senator Harris has some information that at some point Judge Kavanaugh expressed a view about an investigation of the president to somebody at Mark Kazowitz's firm. It seems to me like a pretty tenuous sort of grenade to throw in the sense that I'm not quite sure where it leads. The goal is probably in some way to suggest that Brett Kavanaugh is a crony of the president's in some way. I think that would be a pretty hard accusation to substantiate. Kavanaugh long predates Trump and is 
pretty clear about his jurisprudential views, or at least anyone who's kind of read his record and his writings, you know, largely understand that that he is, you know, he, he's an originalist conservative with a, a certain extremely conservative view of the Constitution and doesn't necessarily have any particular connection or fondness uh, to Trump one way or the other. I, I think that it would be pretty hard to tag uh, Kavanaugh in any way as a Trump crony, although he's obviously a conservative within the conservative movement and the conservative political movement, having worked for the George W. Bush uh, administration before becoming a judge. So, you know, I, I don't really know where Senator Harris was going with that. I don't think anyone does. Perhaps she'll rebut his Judge Kavanaugh's statement with, with some testimony in the future. But but I have a hard time imagining that whatever it is that's being kind of hinted at really is something that will make a significant difference or change the way that anyone sees Kavanaugh or understands what his political and judicial preferences are very likely to be. One or a couple other displays of Judge Kavanaugh's judicial preferences were put forth today in kind of the latest episode in this battle that's gone on all week between the opposing senators over the the documents pertinent to uh, to Kavanaugh's record, um, the provided documents, the ones withheld, the ones marked sort of just for review of the committee. I think of of that uh, class, the ones certified just for a committee review. Some were released today by a few Democratic senators with. To, with some um, attendant fanfare, actually, at the beginning of, of the hearing from, among others, uh, Senator Booker. From those, do you think there was anything kind of particularly interesting I know then talked about during the day? One of them related to, I think, a, a Department of Transportation policy regarding, I think, minority and women-owned businesses that perhaps uh, would get an advantage by that policy that Brett Kavanaugh had referred to as a, a racial set-aside. This is maybe 16 or 17 years ago when he was in the White House counsel, I believe. And then I think within the same position at the same time, he wrote about Roe v. Wade as a potentially live issue as maybe not so settled law. I guess um, do either of those things seem important or interesting or things that might move the needle? What are your thoughts on on those uh, document uh, releases or anything else that might have come out in those documents today? Yeah. Well, well, you know, they're all important and interesting right, because they give an insight into how Brett Kavanaugh thinks and what his views of the Constitution are. That said, I think it would be only surprising if some of these emails suggested that Judge Kavanaugh had views of the Constitution that aligned with kind of progressive uh, values or progressive uh, types of constitutional methods of interpretation. Uh, If he said, oh, I think the Constitution is always changing and should always be evaluated in light of modern norms and and standards, that would be tremendously (laughs) surprising. But anybody who is surprised that uh, Judge Kavanaugh has very conservative views of the constitutionality on uh, controversial social and uh, legal issues is fooling themselves. You know, this is a man who absolutely is very dubious of precedents like Roe v. Wade. Perhaps he's even more dubious of other long-standing constitutional preferences that aren't directly seated within the, the, the direct text and original meaning uh, in the 1700s 
uh, of what the, the various constitutional provisions stood for. I say the 1700s because many modern rights find their roots in the 14th Amendment, which uh, was passed in the late 1800s and had a much more progressive intent behind it. The people who wrote and debated the 14th Amendment um, were, were very much attuned to what they saw as the horrors of slavery and inequality. But at least in the 1700s, late 1700s, that was not a, a major concern of the founders. And, you know, it, it is probably difficult to find many of the um, constitutional doctrines that developed since the 1960s in a very strict constructionist version of the Constitution. And that's the type of Constitution that Judge Kavanaugh sees. So for Judge Kavanaugh to say that he thinks that racial preferences are a form of set-asides, or frankly, if he were to say that he thinks that racial preferences violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, that would not surprise me at all. Much much as if uh, um, he were to say that, that he had doubts about Roe v. Wade or other uh, long-standing precedents, and he's obviously trying to walk a fine line on many of these issues so that he doesn't draw too much heat during his confirmation hearings. But, but I would be much more shocked uh, to see an email where he said, no, I really believe that Roe v. Wade was correctly decided, than to find an email from him saying, I believe that Roe v. Wade was incorrectly decided. Yeah. yeah if you, you found one of those, that's something that might actually put his nomination in some jeopardy, I might think. It might, actually. That might be one of the only situations in which uh, Republicans and Republican-leaning <laughs> uh, groups, interest groups that really want him to be uh, confirmed. That's the only way they might pull their their support. But you're not going to find that email uh, for the very simple reason that there is virtually no question of what Judge Kavanaugh believes on many of these issues. Yeah, so I, as you say, it would not surprise anyone that, that Brett Kavanaugh might think a case like Roe v. Wade could merit some reconsideration and might receive some. But also, as you say, he, like previous nominees has done and will do his best to avoid saying anything too committal when it comes to his position on, on that case or previous Supreme Court cases. But there was one instance today where Senator Klobuchar questioned him on you know the difference between Roe v. Wade and some other previous precedent that candidates or nominees like Kavanaugh would feel more comfortable saying are sort of settled, settled laws or are settled law that should not be disturbed. She mentioned Brown v. Board of Education as a case that I think Kavanaugh has discussed in the past as as settled. And, and Senator Klobuchar said, well, it sounds like you, you view that precedent differently than Roe v. Wade, which you refer to more as precedent rather than settled. And she asked why that might be the case. And he sort of seemed to, to give up the game a little bit because he said, he says, I heard it, that it's okay to refer to Brown v. Board of Education as, as settled because it's not the sort of thing that will come up before the Supreme Court again. The natural conclusion of that thought is that Roe v. Wade will, but he, he sort of cut himself off short, and there was a bit of a silent, pregnant pause there. I don't know if you caught that or if generally you think that he has showed his hand at all when it comes to this issue before the, the panel this week. Well, the reality, Brian, is that there's no such thing as settled constitutional precedent when it comes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court views its constitutional precedents kind of surprisingly, or you may be, you and your listeners may be surprised to learn that the U.S. Supreme Court views constitutional precedent as actually the weakest form of precedent. That is, statutory precedent and, and other types of precedent are considered much, much stronger because 
uh, Congress can always change a law. But constitutional precedent really can't be changed except by the Supreme Court or an amendment to the Constitution is very difficult to obtain. So the Supreme Court views its own constitutional preference, uh, precedents as the ones in some ways most likely to be overruled down the road. So I always find when when folks talk about kind of settled constitutional precedent or super precedent, that, that to be a very strange concept because it doesn't really exist outside of the political sphere. Uh, the only way to ensure that certain precedents are always uh, uh, maintained is to pass a constitutional amendment that locks in what the Supreme Court can do. But otherwise, it's really up to the court. So, you know, when... He says that uh, he views Brown v. Board of Education or Roe v. Wade as settled precedent. That really doesn't mean anything except perhaps that he agrees or disagrees with that precedent personally. I suspect he probably would agree with Brown v. Board of Education. Um, the decision in Brown was much more clearly rooted uh, in constitutional text. Uh, and the Equal Protection Clause than the decision in Roe v. Wade was. Roe v. Wade, at least when it was initially decided, dealt with this kind of question, arose from this kind of question of privacy rights that were found in a number of different constitutional amendments kind of pulled together from there. Um, That was later changed to involve kind of equal protection for women and the, the substantive due process clause of the 14th Amendment, the idea that there is there are certain kinds of liberties that no process is sufficient to remove. But, you know, the I mean, I, I think it's unlikely for political reasons that you're going to see a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court, or at least one that the Supreme Court takes up. But I think it's much, you know, much more likely that you'll see a whittling away of the abortion right uh, slowly, essentially fewer and fewer state actions being deemed to, to cause or create undue burdens on a woman's right to choose. But that has to do with politics and the court's desire not to insert itself, generally speaking, right in the middle of hot-button political issues, because the court doesn't want to, by and large, doesn't want to be seen as a purely political body. They want to be seen as this court that really just kind of neutrally interprets the Constitution. Certain things are okay, certain things aren't, and that it shouldn't matter who is on the court in some way because every well-thinking person uh, who interprets the Constitution should see it this way. That's what the court wants to convey. The reality, of course, is completely different, and the methods of interpretation are so important to the outcomes that come out of the Supreme Court. But, you know, so for political reasons, I think you're probably very unlikely to see a challenge to Brown versus Board of Education. It's a widely supported precedent, thank goodness. Um, and and you're, you're probably less likely to see the court take up a direct challenge to the basic principle of Roe v. Wade, that is that there is some sort of fundamental right to obtain an abortion on demand. But I think extremely likely to see the court slowly reduce the level of that protection and perhaps eventually to to a, a level where it's it doesn't really have much meaning. A non-legal question here for you. Do you, do you have any thoughts on the, the protests that have sustained pretty consistently and with some intensity throughout the week? There was certainly a burst of them at the beginning, but they, they really have been a, a pretty constant occurrence throughout 
out the last few days. Do you think that the the nature of them or the intensity of them is something new? I, I don't recall as many really at all from the past confirmation process with, with Neil Gorsuch and, uh, and certainly from previous ones. I don't recall anything quite like um, what's occurred here. Yeah, I mean, it's there are a number of ways to look at it. I think it's probably an artifact of two things. One are the tremendous stakes of this, you know, disappointment. You know, Judge Kavanaugh is going to make a very significant difference in the uh, constitutional law that the Supreme Court, the constitutional law the Supreme Court issues, uh, and the way it interprets the Constitution will make a really big difference for a lot of people. So I think that there's a lot of passion uh, about that. Also, of course, in the age of Trump, people are very politically passionate and uh, view the you know what's kind of going on in the political sphere very very personally and are very much engaged. But at a deeper level, I think this is probably as much an artifact of the internet age, perhaps as well as Trump himself is an artifact of the internet age. But a, a world that we we inhabit in which everybody feels the need to participate directly and vocally in every kind of aspect of public life, um, from getting up and shouting from uh, to deciding that there's really no such thing as an expert or any need for expertise because um, I could just go on uh, the internet and Google something and get an answer of some kind. Um, so I think all of these things tie together. The idea that our institutions aren't uh, inherently deserving of respect, that the way to challenge things isn't through the democratic process or uh, by calling your senator, but by standing up and kind of trying to go viral and disrupt things because you feel very strongly about it. So, so I think that these, these kind of trends all tied together and are a, kind of a, a part and parcel of our modern Twitter-based, um, outrage-focused kind of public civil life than it is anything necessarily specific about Brett Kavanaugh himself. And the, the same sense. One pretty central focus of really senators from both sides of the aisle this week has, has been Brett Kavanaugh's approach to or his judicial philosophy about contours of executive power. In particular, in at least a handful of senators, including Chris Coons from, from Delaware, has a couple of times asked him about what he might view as the, the unitary executive um, and whether and to what extent he thinks the executive should sort of have plenipotentiary power over really any agent that, that works within the executive branch, including any agency head or most salient at the moment, a special counsel investigating the president. What have we kind of learned about Brett Kavanaugh on this score? And ex- exactly what is the, the that idea of the unitary executive? Is it just that the, the president should basically be able to, to fire and anyone that's within in the branch? What What is that uh, all about? Right. So the unitary executive is a theory of structural constitutionalism that arose really in the 1970s, but sort of reached its apex during the George W. Bush administration. And the idea is that the Constitution as it is written uh, ultimately comes down to an originalist view of the Constitution. The Constitution as it is written only conceives of three branches of government, a judiciary made up of the members of the Supreme Court, 
a Congress made up of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the president, uh, not the, uh, the president and a number of agencies, not the president and kind of people who may or may not work for him. It's the president. And the president is at the top of everything else that flows through the executive. It arises from really the idea of the president as the embodiment of the sovereign. Uh, the United States, of course, doesn't have a king. It was uh, one of the first countries uh, rising in the, out of the European tradition not to have a king. And the, so the question became, well, who is going to be the person who is making sure the laws are enforced, that things happen, that that who, who's the person who can talk to foreign governments, who can lead the military, and take on all those other roles of the king. And that was the president in our setting. But he's somebody who would be elected and eventually came to have term limits and other limitations. Over time, the United States developed what has since been called the administrative state. That, that is the offices of the executive agency that are, are beneath the president, but operate extremely independently of the president, that have their own notice and rulemaking procedures, that have their own staff that may be made up of individuals who are nominated by certain members of Congress or confirmed in some quasi-legislative role where the, the Supreme Court has previously held the president can't really fire those people. They can be appointed for fixed terms. Think of the, the head of the Federal Reserve or the head of, uh, of some of the commissions, like the Federal Trade Commission. These are people who are appointed, confirmed, and then get to serve out their term as long as they're on good behavior. The president can't just fire them because he wants to. The president can't just go in and change some regulation because he wants to. The unitary executive theory would basically do away with those restrictions on what the president can do within the executive agency. Ultimately, the idea is the president, and those agencies, of course, also include the Justice Department, but the idea is that the president uh, is the person who's at the head of this. The president is the executive. The president gets to control everything that happens within the executive branch if he, if he wants to. And the legislature's role is to investigate and if they really don't like something, impeach the president or prevent his nominees from being confirmed, his new nominees, once he fires somebody, for example, from being confirmed, or, uh, or his judges from being confirmed. If there are ways the legislature uh, can involve itself or the courts can involve themselves, but that in, in terms of what the executive agencies do, that's up to the president and the president alone. So, so that's the unitary executive theory. It's never really taken hold. But it's something that you've certainly seen um, mention of during the Bush administration. And it, it, the idea comes down to essentially structural accountability, that ultimately, how are the voters to decide whether some, something is going well or poorly if there's some quasi-legislative uh, appointee who the president can't do anything about um, who is making decisions or, or an agency that is doing things that it wants to do uh, that the president doesn't necessarily agree with, um, how can the voters decide whether they want to keep the president who maybe should be able to make those changes, at least the, these folks think, or not? So that's unitary, the, the unitary executive theory. 
and it's one that, again, arising out of the Bush administration, arising out of a very strict constructionist, originalist view of the Constitution, is one that uh, Judge Kavanaugh probably uh, has a good deal of affection for. That idea that the unitary executive or that, that theory of the unitary executive would seem to kind of cut against the norms people have been discussing more recently in the last couple of years that, say, Department of Justice acts somewhat independently and investigates folks who have, who have done things wrong and not people that the president just wants to investigate things along those lines. Right. I mean, that, that's, I mean the, the, right. the president's tweets are probably, you know, the, there's an argument to be made that the president's tweets um, criticizing the, you know, Jeff Sessions for prosecuting Republicans who are corrupt um, when there's political points to be made if they aren't removed from office, um, are arguably an impeachable offense in themselves uh, as a form of obstruction of justice. Um, it's truly terrible um, that the president or any president would uh, attempt to directly influence the Justice Department into only prosecuting his political enemies and ignoring crimes committed by people within his own party his own party is absolutely ab abhorrent whichever president or party might do it and it's certainly not something that presidents have done in this sort of direct way in the past this direct and public way i guess i'd say in the past whether presidents have you know sought to influence the justice department uh, over the decades from behind the scenes uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure we, any of us know. But it's pretty extraordinary to see those statements by, by the president. Um, you know, I don't think that there is any lawyer or judge in the country who would agree with the president's position on that, um, period. Uh, you know, it may be that Judge Kavanaugh doesn't want to address it directly in the public hearings because – like many issues, he may be called upon to decide them as a justice of the Supreme Court. The idea that anybody would kind of agree with that, I think, is beyond pure political actors. That is, anyone in the legal field would agree with that is, is somewhat ludicrous. Even if the president may have authority, in theory, under a unitary executive concept to direct Justice Department investigations in that way. Mm -hmm. um, that is, maybe he has the power to do that. Uh, but we have developed norms and traditions that uh, support the idea of a rule of law uh, and that the law is going to apply to people of both parties, no matter who's in power. And I think that almost e even political actors in, in both parties see the incredible danger of a different rule, one in which simply the opponents of whoever is in the political power get, get prosecuted. So just uh, maybe a couple more with the uh, Democratic senator from Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, has touched on this theme of corporate influence in the Supreme Court getting larger and, and, and more outsized. He mentioned today and you mentioned yesterday that the uh, corporate influence at the high court is, is, he said, not an offshore storm, but has made landfall. He mentioned very opaque corporate spending will fund parties and also many amici at the high court. Um, he also mentioned today that the Supreme Court maybe was either just willfully blind or naive when it thought that Citizens United would only free up very transparent and independent corporate spending and, and political 
events. Yeah, I'd be curious your thoughts generally about his theme or his idea that this problem, as he sees it, has gotten worse and anything kind of revealed by Brett Kavanaugh as to his thoughts on corporate expenditures or political donations sort of generally that you might have gleaned this week? Well, there's two different issues kind of in play in that question. One is, do corporations have uh, an oversized influence in the Supreme Court as opposed to other interest groups, right? Corporations, business groups are really just an interest group, and there are other interest groups out there that that, uh, participate in the political and legal process. So so the question is, you know, perhaps do those groups have too much influence? Um, And I, I think that you know, there are a couple of answers to that. One is that, you know, as the justices on the Supreme Court have become more conservative over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years as they, um, you know, in terms of their makeup on the court, um, conservative viewpoints tend to align with the interests of business because they tend to be anti-regulatory. Uh, and business, generally speaking, wants to do whatever it wants uh, and doesn't want to be regulated, whether that's criminal regulation, civil regulation, whatever the regulation might be, um, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court has been moving in ways that deregulate businesses or are more questioning of um, positions that are, are more onerous in terms of regulation for business. Uh, in addition to that, of course, corporations are very wealthy and have the ability to procure very high-end, skilled, talented legal counsel. So, the viewpoints that are being expressed to the Supreme Court by the bar, by the Supreme Court bar, which has become a much more standardized and professional specific bar uh, in Washington, D.C. over the past, you know, 20 or 30 years, um, that, that, that bar is one that's frequently retained by corporate interests because corporate interests are the ones that really can afford that extremely high-priced counsel and also don't have kind of conflicts of interest with those lawyers. So both of those have certainly contributed to um, more viewpoints that are favorable to corporations being expressed to the Supreme Court and adopted by the Supreme Court. The second question, a separate question uh, there, is kind of what's the effect of or is that affected by the loosening of political donations by corporations in the Citizens United case? And and what have the the effects of the Citizens United case been? Uh, You know, it's very hard to say, I think, what the effects of Citizens United specifically have been because campaign financing was already very much um, uh, deregulated and opaque uh, even before then. Um, The Supreme Court in a number of different decisions in the 90s uh, and in the 2000s really took much of the teeth out of um, the the campaign finance laws that were uh, initially passed uh, really after the Nixon era and then again kind of in the 1990s by John McCain, in fact. So, you know, what people used to refer to five to seven groups or or PACs. They didn't even talk about super PACs. They talk about PACs. And um, so so when the Citizens United decision came out, it it lessened some of those regulations, specifically as related to corporations. But, boy, the law had already been opened up pretty wide before then. 
what didn't happen after Citizens United, and what I think the justices of the Supreme Court thought would happen and then didn't, was that um, you know largely due to political paralysis in Congress and um, positions that the Republican Party took, refusing to advance uh, legislation from the president of any kind, is that uh, at least in the Senate, once the Republicans took control of the Senate is that they didn't Congress didn't pass what what was proposed as the Disclose Act that is a law that um would have required even if it didn't prevent and couldn't prevent corporate contributions uh the, the Supreme Court and Citizens United said that Congress could probably require disclosure of corporate contributions and kind of where money was coming from Congress never passed that law to require disclosure of where corporate money is coming from. And that, you know, has perhaps even more than anything else been what has allowed just these vast quantities of dark uh, money from who knows where, from companies, special interests, possibly foreign governments, um, to, to really enter the political system. So... I think that is as much of the a, a reason for kind of where we are in the campaign finance world uh, as anything else. And whether that leads to decision making um, that favors corporations, it, it probably leads to a lot of things, uh, having that uh, kind of undisclosed source, that kind of free flowing money out in the political system, um, one of which may be decisions that favor corporations um, more than other groups. Yeah, just last one, do you have any kind of concluding thoughts on anything that maybe has stood out to you from today's events or any from, from the week? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that one, you know, the one final point that I'd make, you know, is that there was some discussion about kind of calling balls and strikes. You know, what is the proper role? What is it that a Supreme Court justice does? And John Roberts in his confirmation hearings very famously said, you know, a Supreme Court justice is an umpire. He or she just calls balls and strikes. We're not political actors. We don't have agendas. We just kind of call it the way it is. But that is a pretty, um, I think, misleading description of what a, a Supreme Court justice does. Or perhaps it's an incomplete description of what a Supreme Court justice does. Because a Supreme Court justice certainly does call balls and strikes. But a Supreme Court justice also gets to define what the strike zone is, uh, which, of course, changes the entire metaphor. Um, yes, you can call balls and strikes, but you get to decide what counts as a ball and what counts as a strike really removes the value of saying that, uh, you know, we're just neutral arbitrators who kind of decide things without uh, any preconceived views. Uh, of course, Supreme Court justices um, have their methods of constitutional interpretation, and those methods of constitutional interpretation, they define what it is that the Supreme Court justice is going to see as a ball and what it is that the Supreme Court justice is going to see as a strike. So contending or, or, or saying that Supreme Court justices are these non-political neutral actors um, is, is something of a misdescription. What Supreme Court justices do that make them different than politicians is they have to explain why they're doing what they do, why they think something is a ball or is a strike. And they, they only have, moreover, they only have that explanation to convince people 
that people should follow what their decision is. They don't have any ability to control finances or give someone a bigger or smaller budget or send the military after somebody or the police after somebody. Uh, those are other branches of government. All they get to do is say why they think the, the Constitution um, says or stands for the point that they think it stands for and what their reasoning is in getting there. Um, so they're not fully political actors, but they're not these neutral umpires kind of deciding objective questions either. Yeah, it always seemed a bit like a suspect metaphor from the get-go. It seemed to presuppose a very fixed strike zone, which even in the baseball setting is, is not true. Umpires have their, their own strike zones, and, and so so it would seem to judges. But anyway, we can leave it there uh, for now. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, thanks so much for hopping on the, the podcast today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian, anytime. And that is a wrap for our coverage of day three of Brett Kavanaugh's U.S. Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Stay tuned to the Daily Journal and here to the weekly Appellate Report podcast for continuing coverage of all the goings-ons in the Senate Judiciary Committee in Washington. I'm Brian Cardell. Have a good night.